I am uh, anxious to get into the message, but it would hurt my conscience if I didn't take a moment and say thank you. Mom and Dad always taught me to be grateful for blessings received, and this chance this week for me to be with you has been a blessing to me. Uh, You've treated me like family, and that makes it easier to be away from your family when you have to be, when you feel like you're with family. Uh, I've always had a special appreciation for Brother Tony. Before I traveled with him to Bible Lands places, and thereafter I've grown to love him and appreciate him more and more and appreciate the longevity that he has had with this congregation. And I know that you know he loves you and cares for you, and I sense that that feeling is very, very mutual. I want to thank you as a congregation for helping us at the Memphis School of Preaching. We could not do what we do without folks like you to support our students, our faculty, to uh, encourage them along the way, to take some of our graduates and groom them for greater service in the here and the now and then in years to come. Uh, I just really can't tell you how much we deeply value and cherish our friendship with you, our partnership with you in the gospel. And so uh, thank you very, very much to the leadership and to every part of the membership for helping us to fulfill the Great Commission. It means a lot. If you ever have a desire to come over and visit us, our lectureship always starts the last Sunday in March, whatever Sunday that is. That's, that is a full last week in March or early April this year. It happened to fall March 31st through April the 4th. Uh, next year, I think it's March 29, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's going to be a great theme. Our theme next year, Magnify His Name. Going to be a lectureship devoted to magnifying the name of Jesus Christ and the work that He did for us redemptively. Uh, will magnify the Godhead, and it will be a great opportunity. And I thank you so much for letting me be with you this week. Never underestimate the power of. I heard a woman as I was growing up, and that's so true. I could preach a whole sermon on that, talking about the power of certain women in Scripture and the biblical work that they did. I want to broaden it to include both men and women. Never underestimate the power of one deed you may do or one simple sentence that you may speak. I want to give you some illustrations from the Old Testament and then a couple from the New Testament. And then I want to give you some modern day illustrations of this very principle because I think sometimes we think great things have to involve some magnificent feat of uh, abilities and sometimes it's great things are accomplished by someone caring enough to say one thing. Let me illustrate. Start with me in Genesis chapter 14. I want you to look at what one man did for Lot and his family. Uh, in Genesis chapter 14, some kings conglomerate together and capture Lot and his family and take them hostage. And one man, one individual, escapes. Verse 13, there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. And we're told in verse 14 that when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he trained or armed his trained servants rather, born in his own house, 318 of them, pursued them unto Dan, and long story short, verse 16, brought back all the goods, also brought again his brother Lot, his goods, and the women also, and the people. I'd like for you to tell me the name of the one mentioned in verse 13 that helped to save Lot and his family. What is their name? I don't know. I want to tell you that my dad told me before I left for college, he said, son, I want you to always remember this. Some of God's most noble and dedicated servants are people whose names you've never heard of. And this individual in Genesis 14 
is unnamed. I want to ask you, is this unnamed person important? I guarantee you he was important or she was important to Lot and his family. There's no doubt about that. This one bit of information is what enabled Abram to then take the 318 and to go after and to rescue Lot. Now someone says, who saved Lot? Was it the 318 armed and trained servants? Well, if they hadn't been notified of the need to rescue Lot and his family, they wouldn't have been involved. They wouldn't have done what they did. So the one unnamed individual started this chain reaction. And as you think about what happened as a result of this chain reaction, there was indeed some kind of conflict that led to the rescue of Lot and his family, and it all started with one individual uttering a simple sentence. I'm reminded of a man that was on a cruise ship, and he was sick to his stomach. He was seasick, and he heard a commotion above him, and there was a cry, Man overboard! And he felt so helpless being in his bunk, unable to assist in any way. He thought as he heard this commotion that maybe, just maybe, if he put his lantern up in the porthole, that the light from it might cast enough of a light or a shadow that would assist the people on the top deck looking for the man. And this man that was rescued was reeled in by the folks on deck And he was asked, did you think you were going to make it? And he said, I'll be honest with you, I thought I was going to drown. And about the time I was giving up hope, I saw a flicker of a light. And I went to that light, and I thought maybe, just maybe, if I make enough motion, they'll be able to see some kind of evidence that I'm here. And someone on board said, I saw a flicker of what I thought was a shadow and I threw the rope in that direction and you just happened to be there. I'd like to ask you a question. Who saved the man from drowning? I know the people that threw him the rope and reeled him in saved him, but did the person that put their porthole, their lantern rather, in the porthole, did that person have anything to do with saving the individual in the water? That one simple act was also instrumental in bringing that person to safety. Now I want you to take a moment and consider 2 Kings 5. The Syrians had gone out and conducted some raids. And in the course of conducting those raids, they brought back a little captive maid from the land of Israel. And they assigned her to be in charge of Naaman's wife. She was to be the attendant to Naaman's wife. Now, I want to notice something with you this young girl, this little captive maid did, that is really remarkable and that led to changing Naaman's life and the life of those who loved him. In 2 Kings chapter 5, the Bible says that she said to her mistress, that's Naaman's wife, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, he would recover him of his leprosy. Now, I find it remarkable that someone who's been taken hostage against their will cares enough about the people that took her hostage to actually look for a way to benefit their lives. Some folks would be like, you, you're going to capture me and think I'm going to help you? Uh-uh. But that's not her attitude. She apparently had a great heart of compassion. I don't know how much you know about leprosy because we're not really afflicted with that problem in our day and time like they were back in that day and time. Leprosy comes in various forms, and whatever form it was happening in Naaman, it was definitely a threat to his quality of life, his quantity of life. And yet this girl said one simple sentence, I I wish that my Lord were with the prophet of God that's in Samaria. That's all she said. And then the next thing you know, verse 4 says, One went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that's of the land of Israel. And the next thing you know, Naaman's gone to the king of Syria. The king of Syria sends him to the king of Israel. The king of Israel rents his clothes and says, 
I can't heal lepers. What are you trying to pick a quarrel with me? Of course, she never said he ought to go see the king of Israel. She said he ought to go see the prophet of God in Samaria. And he did finally end up at his door. And the messenger says, all right, you go dip seven times in the Jordan. You'll be cleansed of your leprosy. You won't be a leper anymore. He went and he dipped seven times. At first he went away mad. He went away in a rage. His servants, they came to him and said, this is so simple, ma'am, and it's so simple. Why don't you just do it? And so he did. By the way, what were the names of his servants that influenced him to dip as he ought to dip? I don't know. Well, what is the name of the little girl that changed his life. I mean, think about it. As he came up after that seventh dip and realized, I'm not a leper anymore, did that young girl change this man's life by uttering a simple sentence that started this chain reaction that led to his cleansing? Indeed, what is the name of the little girl who played a part in Naaman's cleansing I have no idea. No one knows except God. I want to ask you, did that unnamed little girl have anything to do with changing a man's life by uttering a simple sentence? And you know the answer. Yes, she did. Now, we do know the name of the Ethiopian eunuch. And you say, I don't think so. I've read Acts 8 a thousand times and I've never seen the name of the Ethiopian. I'm not talking about that Ethiopian eunuch. I'm talking about the Jeremiah 38 Ethiopian eunuch. I want to notice him with you. One thing that he said changed Jeremiah's life, probably saved Jeremiah's life for sure. In Jeremiah chapter 38, the Bible says in verse 6 that they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon. And the last part of that verse, it says in the dungeon there was no water, but there was just mire. And Jeremiah sunk in the mire. For what it's worth, Josephus in his histories records that Jeremiah got up to his neck in that mire and that he was indeed sinking and that he was going down and down and down. And so how will anyone save him? Will anyone save him? If I ask you to tell me everything you know about Ebed-Melech, I know a lot of folks would say, Ebed who? Ebed-Melech. Look at verse 7. Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs. So here is an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. He's in the king's house. He hears they put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And he says, that has nothing to do with me. I'm staying out of it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. He He actually goes forth out of the king's house. He speaks to the king and he says, verse 9, My lord, the king, these men have done evil and all they've done to Jeremiah the prophet. They've cast him into the dungeon. He's likely to die for hunger in the place where he is. There's no more bread in the city. And long story short, the king actually grants Ebed-Melech the permission and authority to take some men with him. And they take some old garments and they fashion them into a rope. And they throw them down to Jeremiah in the dungeon. And Ebed-Melech tells Jeremiah in verse 12, Put now these old cast clouts or these old worn out garments, these rags, put them under your armholes. And Jeremiah did so, verse 13. So they, not just Ebed-Melech, they drew up Jeremiah with cords took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. I'd like to ask you, did Ebed-Melech make the list of top ten Bible characters who did great things in your studies as you grew up? How many times have we even talked about this man? But How many times have we talked about Jeremiah? If Ebed-Melech had not done what he did, said what he said, Jeremiah would have died likely, And the work that he did after he was spared by Ebed-Melech would never have been done. One rarely known Bible character changed and benefited you and me and all who've read the book of Jeremiah and all who heard Jeremiah preach by the one simple thing that he said and did. 
and then the New Testament. Tell me the names of the four men that took the paralytic to Jesus at the house there in Capernaum. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us their names. The Bible tells us that the crowd was so thick around the door, they couldn't get to Jesus because of the multitude, the press of the crowd. So they didn't give up. They went up on top of the roof and started tearing it open so that they could take this man and they could actually put him down into the midst where Jesus was teaching in the house. Now what if just one of the four had dropped out and refused to help any longer and said, look, this crowd is too thick. We tried. Sorry, man. Good luck. We'll pray for you. No, they didn't do that. They saw it through. If one of the four had dropped out and left only three, the burden would have been heavier for the three. If two of the four had dropped out, then two men probably could have gotten him to Jesus, but it would have been a a very difficult thing uh, to get him to Jesus with just two. And what if three of the four had dropped out and one man tried to do this all by his lonesome? It would have been very, very difficult to do as one But when four different individuals join themselves together in a great cause, it makes the undoable doable. And so here you see a man saved that. Remember, the best thing that happened to that man that day wasn't that he could walk again, as great as that was. Jesus saved this man from his sins. He was forgiven. Four unnamed men in the scriptures. People that I don't know helped bring a man to Christ. What about you? What about me? I want you to consider modern day illustration of this. And I want to tell you that I first heard the story I'm about to tell you on a cassette tape back in the 1980s, young people. A cassette tape is something you put in a player and it spins round and round and sound comes out and uh, it's a great, great thing, but it's like a dinosaur now to most folks. So on this cassette tape that I'm listening to, there's a speaker speaking at a youth event and the sermon that he preached is where I first heard this story in its entirety and I was so moved by the story that was told by the speaker that day I asked for his permission to also tell it from time to time so that it would encourage people to be involved and say the one thing that they could say. And I was granted that permission. And as time went by, I was even granted access to some of the photos of the people involved. This is Joe. He was conceived sometime in the early part of 1941. When his mother found out that she was expecting Joe, she didn't want him. But this was 1941, and even though she tried to find a doctor that would perform an abortion, this was 1941, when that kind of thing wasn't so easily available. And so she went ahead and had to bring him to full term, and he was born September the 27th of 19. 41. In his early years, he was a very good student, but he didn't go to church because mom and dad weren't church-going people. He did go to the vacation Bible school a couple of times in his community, but really no religious training. He was a good student, but as he, as he grew older, things started going south for him because He started drinking as he got older. He was no longer this baby-faced boy that you see on the picture. He got into high school and he started drinking and he started uh, getting into fights. In fact, he punched out the school's star basketball player in high school and uh, was kicked out of school for this. And he felt so sorry for himself. At age 16, he ran away to Denver, Colorado. He was from Illinois, but he went to Denver, Colorado, and he found out quickly there wasn't a soul in Denver, Colorado that cared whether he lived or died. So he didn't stay there very long. He, He came back. He took his medicine. 
And as time went by, he actually would go into the service. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. Since his mom and dad never taught him about Jesus, will he ever hear about Jesus? And if he hears about Jesus, how will that happen? Who will be the one to inform him about Jesus and what Jesus has done for him? Who's going to tell Joe about Jesus? Well, as he gets into the service, he joined the Air Force. He took his basic training in Texas. Churches of Christ all over Texas, but no one from the church ever interacted with Joe while he was in Texas to let him know anything about the Lord's church and the Christ of the church. And so Joe, at one point, decided to go AWOL. He and a buddy of his left, and they traveled from Texas northward, and they went up to the upper Midwest, and they were breaking into cars and taking things to keep them going for a while. He went to his wife. He had married before he went to the service. He went to his wife and he said, I want you to run away with me to a foreign country. And she said, I will do no such thing. I'm not going to spend the rest of our lives looking over our shoulders to see if anyone's coming after us. No, I won't do it. You need to go back and take your medicine and just deal with it. And so he went back, all right, and they stripped him of his some stripes. Uh, he lost a great deal of pay, and he was indeed told, you're going to be leaving here, and you're going to be going to Okinawa. Now, I don't know how much you know about Okinawa. It's an island of only about 60 miles long, 12 miles wide at its widest point, thousands of miles from where Joe wanted to be, and especially his wife was this close to being far enough along in her pregnancy that Joe could have stayed for the birth of their child, but he, she wasn't far enough along. And so when Joe shipped over to Okinawa, he knew that he would not see their child for the first 18 months at least of that child's life. When Joe found out his child was born on May the 8th of 1961, he celebrated this with a drinking binge, and he began to drink even more and more. In fact, truth be told, he went and bought him some black sake. Sake is a cheaply manufactured rice wine. Black sake was one of the most cheaply manufactured you could buy in the location where he was. Some people drinking it had gone blind. Some had even died, but Joe didn't care about that. In fact, Joe wanted to die at one point in his life. He'd actually considered that option. And he was absolutely miserable. All of his roommates couldn't stand him. He was constantly gambling his paycheck away. He was just a very, very mixed up, miserable man who was thousands of miles from home. Is anyone ever going to take the personal responsibility to tell Joe that he can find a better life in Christ? A better life. He bought this black sake, so he's drinking it. And he gets intoxicated. As he's walking and stumbling, he falls and the glass bottle of sake shatters against the concrete stairwell and Joe sits there sobbing and picking up broken bits of glass and sucking whatever alcohol he can get out of those broken bits of glass that's still nestled in there. He's just a real mess. Who's going to help him? Is there anyone that will say something to help him? This is Crockett. Now this is a picture of him in his older years when he met Joe Crockett was only 17 years old. Now Crockett, he knows about Jesus. In fact, he learned about Jesus from his mom and his dad. His, his mother, Audie Crockett, was the wife of an elder, Aubrey Crockett, who lived in Coleman, Texas. And they had trained their boy to know about Jesus and to know about the church that Jesus built that we've preached about this week. 
And so Crockett was aware that Jesus had come to earth and died for the sins of men to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. Crockett was aware that a church started in Acts 2 that was the church belonging to Christ. And Crockett knew this, and Crockett was also aware that Joe was a miserable mess and that Jesus was the answer to his problems. And so after being given the news that he was going to be Crockett's new roommate, Joe looked over Crockett and saw his baby face and thought, they've asked me to babysit is what they're asking me to do. Look at this baby face. And he really mocked him. Crockett didn't let it phase him at all. After being with Joe just for a short time, he was able to say something that he learned from his mom and his dad. You see, much like we read in 2 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 3.15, Timothy, how did you get your faith? The unfeigned faith that is in thee, it didn't start with you. It dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and then thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in thee also. From a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Mom passes it down to him, and he passes it on. And he now has a chance to pass it on to Joe. He becomes his new roommate, and after a short time of seeing Joe's miseries brought on by his sinfulness, Crockett said this, You know, I believe if I were you, I'd start reading my Bible. That's it. That's all he said. And when Joe heard it, the Bible, (laughs) the Bible, the Bible is for sissies. And he ridiculed it in front of Crockett and acted like that was the dumbest suggestion he'd ever heard. But in his bunk at night, as he lay there miserable, he thought, you know what? I've never tried the Bible. I've never thought about even turning to the Bible. Maybe before I make a drastic decision that I can't reverse, maybe I at least ought to look into the Bible. And so behind everyone else's back and knowledge, he bought him a Bible at the local base exchange. And he started reading it. And he started having questions. And he started going to Crockett with his questions. And Crockett was 17. He was pretty well schooled, but he didn't know all of the answers at his age. And so he said, you know what you need to do? You need to come with me to services. And so Joe and Crockett, they started going to the Ojana Church of Christ there on the island of Okinawa. And they attended the services there. And while there... Joe met a man by the name of Robert George. And Robert George took Joe under his wing and he started studying with him about the blood of Jesus Christ, washing our sins away, Revelation 1.5, and contacting that cleansing blood by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized to wash away our sins in the blood of Christ, Acts 22.16, and that that adds us to the church of Jesus Christ And when Joe questioned whether he could be forgiven after all the sinful things that he'd done in his lifetime, Robert George assured him that every sin stain could be removed by the blood of Christ. And so Joe was baptized for the remission of his sins to enter the Lord's church. And he would later say that when he came up out of the water, he felt so light and so unburdened that he's never, ever forgotten that feeling. Never, ever forgotten that feeling. I'd like to tell you that this story has no bumps along the way and that they lived happily ever after. But that would be untrue. After his discharge from the Air Force, Joe came home to be with his wife, meet his 18-month-old son for the very first time. And unfortunately, he fell away from the church. He quit going. And he started drinking again. And he started getting miserable again. And then one day his milk route 
took him in a certain direction and he made a wrong turn instead of a right turn. But that wrong turn turned into a right turn because it took him right by the Elmwood Church of Christ church building in Elmwood, Illinois. And when Joe saw that sign, his heart leapt within him and he thought, you know what? The happiest I've ever been in my life was when I was in the church doing what's right and worshiping God regularly. I'm miserable again because I've left the thing that made me happy, Jesus Christ and His church. I'm going this Sunday and my wife, she'll go with me. Well, she wouldn't. She didn't want to go. And so Joe was now given a real test. Will he go without her? He, he took his two boys and they went to the services and they started attending there regularly and he starts being happy again and as a matter of fact he's restored and he kept leaving tracts around the house for his wife to read. She was Roman Catholic in her persuasion and he would leave the book by Leroy Brownlow, a discussion between a preacher and a priest around and he'd leave it on the chair in such a way so that He'd position it a certain way, and when he'd leave and go run an errand, he'd come back and see it was positioned differently, and he knew his wife had been reading some of that content while he'd been gone. And then one day, she starts going to church, and then one day, she is baptized for the remission of her sins, and no one can find Joe. He's off in an adjacent classroom, crying his eyes out for joy that he's now united in Christ with his wife. And the local preacher says, would you like to do a Wednesday night Devo? And he did. In fact, he started doing a number of little lessons and that turned into filling in on Sunday some when the local preacher was gone. And then the local preacher said, did you know there's a school in Memphis, Tennessee that has a tuition-free education and you can go there and train to become a gospel preacher. And Joe's heart burned within him to do so. His wife at first did not want to go, but decided that she would back him fully. And so in 1970, Joe and his wife and their three children now moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And Joe enrolled in the Memphis School of Preaching and on June the 25th of 1972, he walked across the stage and shook the director's hand, Brother Roy Hearn. And he got his diploma, but he got something else that night. He was voted by the faculty to be the outstanding student of his graduating class. And he thought to himself, how did I go from that stairwell in Okinawa sipping alcohol out of broken bits of glass to being privileged to get a, an education in the Bible and being given such an award as this. How did that happen? He thanked God first and foremost, but he also was so very thankful to Crockett because Crockett had taken what his mama passed on to him and then Crockett had passed that on to Joe. Joe passed it on to his wife and they together passed it on to their three children. And uh, oh, Crockett, did he have anything to do with Joe's children becoming Christians? If he had not said what he said to Joe, Joe's children would not have had likely a Christian father, might not have even met their father or existed because their father would have died before he'd ever had a chance to become their father. Did Crockett have anything to do with the decision of Joe's oldest son to attend Freed Hardeman and to become a, a gospel preacher? And the answer to that is yes, he did. You see, Crockett didn't just have an impact on Joe. He was also very influential in my life as well, and there's no question he's the reason I'm a Christian. He influenced me to become a gospel preacher as well. Because if some of you already might have figured out, I'm Joe's oldest son. And when I think about how one sentence not only changed my dad's life, 
but by extension gave me the chance for a Christian life. I have such gratitude for Joe Crockett. I haven't called him Joe Crockett to this point to avoid confusion. My dad, Teddy Joe Clark, went by Joe in his early years, and Joe Crockett met Joe Clark, my dad, when he was in a miserable, sin-sick condition. And you know, I've thought about this many times. He could have looked at my dad and saw his deplorable condition and his mockery of the Word of God and said, well, I'll never say another word to him. But he didn't write my dad off as someone unreachable with the gospel. He knew that sometimes the most miserable people are the most approachable people when it comes to finding a newer way to live. And so he spoke up. He said, I believe if I were you, I'd start reading my Bible. What if he'd never uttered that sentence? But what did uttering that sentence lead to? It led to my dad becoming a Christian, my mom being converted. All of us as children were baptized into Christ and became members of the body of Christ. But you know, Crockett had something to do with me having the chance to find a Christian wife too. My wife, Tish, you need to know something about how she became a Christian. And by the way, she has threatened me that if I don't take this picture out of this presentation, there will be problems. I'll tell you one reason why I keep it in. Do you remember the little slides I showed you about the man going into the church from Ephesians 5, 23, 4, 4, and 1, 22, and 23? At the very moment I took this picture... On that very computer, she was designing those slides for me as I would describe to her what I wanted. And so she was helping me help others learn the gospel through the visual aid she was providing for me. And I I want you to know how she came to know Christ. There's a door knocking that went on years ago right before a gospel meeting in the St. Louis area. And there's a house where no one's home. In fact, several houses where no one was home. People left a flyer there in the door. And when her family returned home from where they'd been on that Saturday, they saw something sticking out of their door. And the father said, let me go see what that is. And he looked at it. It was a flyer advertising a gospel meeting at the local church of Christ. And he said to his wife, you and I have been talking about the need to to get into church and get our children into church. Here's a church that cared enough to come to our door. Let's go there tomorrow. And they went there the next day. They went every night of the meeting, and a Bible study was set up with a local preacher, and they became members of the Lord's church, and they sent their twin daughters to Freed Hardeman, and both of them married preachers. Uh, What was the name of the person that knocked on the door that day and uh, found no one home? Were they by themselves or did they have a companion knocking doors with them? Was it a young person? Was it an older person? What was their name? I don't know. But oh, I'd love to hug their neck and say, well, did you have any idea? When you put that flyer in that door on that day, that it would lead to the conversion of a family, an entire family, and that those girls would become preachers' wives and influence others, and that my wife, Tish, I know, has done a number of ladies' days, and every group of ladies she's ever able to influence for good, it goes back to the unnamed, unknown people that put that flyer in that door on that day. The power of one deed or one sentence. Uh, as I close, I need to tell you something. You'll notice the, the name of our firstborn child, Daniel Crockett Clark. Why name him that? When Joe Crockett was discharged from the service, he was six weeks away from his wedding date. It was raining. He tried to negotiate a curve at too high of a speed. His car hydroplaned and went hurtling off the pavement. 
and crashed head on into a tree. And no, he didn't die. But he was rendered a quadriplegic, paralyzed in all four limbs. And his fiancée said, I will still marry you when you get better. And Joe Crockett said, I love you too much to let you. I can't give you what you need. You, you, know, you want to be a mom? I can't, I can't help you with that. I, I love you enough to let you find someone you can love who can give you all the things I can't give you. And in years to come, she did meet someone, and at Joe Crockett's insistence, she brought him, her husband, to meet him, and Joe Crockett rejoiced with her and with her husband. In my early days, Joe Crockett was my hero. This picture was taken when my dad was a student at the Memphis School of Preaching. In the early 1970s, I'm over off to the left out of the picture here, but I'm standing there. And when I was growing up, oh yeah, I, I love some of the comic book characters. Captain America was my favorite. But I'll tell you what, there wasn't a hero I had that was more real to me than Joe Crockett. I was so grateful that he had impacted our lives and Joe spent decades in skilled nursing facilities most quadriplegics don't live as long after their accident as as Joe lived and I think about the things that he did my dad taught for years at the Bible Institute of Missouri and trained preachers he's now one of our instructors At the Memphis School of Preaching, his bio says he obeyed the gospel in Okinawa, Japan in 1961, the year of my birth. And I think to myself, how that came to be, one simple sentence, and my sister, you ask her who her hero is, Joe Crockett. It was in the year 2006 that... We got a call that Joe Crockett had gone into a coma. And then for some way, somehow, he came out of that coma for 18 hours and was completely lucid during that 18-hour period. He could talk to people and understand what they were saying. They could understand every word he was saying. And his family and friends report this. During the 18 hours that he was once again lucid, this is what he did for 18 straight hours. With everyone that came in his room to see him, he would do this. Hey, come over here. Right next to my bed, pull that top drawer open. And they would. It was loaded down with cassettes and CDs, recordings of sermons. And he would say, I want you to take one of those sermons with you for free. I want you to listen to it. And the only thing I ask of you is just listen to it with an open mind and then come back to me, visit me again, and tell me what you thought about it. He spent the last 18 hours of his life before he lapsed back into a coma that took his life. He spent the last 18 hours of his life evangelizing in small ways but that small way that he did over in Okinawa led to my father becoming a preacher and helping me to become a preacher and some years ago I preached in what was called a nationwide gospel meeting that was done by satellite and there was a a woman that responded that night and was baptized into Christ and I thought of of Joe Crockett, every time that I'm privileged to see someone become a Christian where I'm involved in In trying to proclaim the gospel, I think back to Joe Crockett. I think back to his mom and whoever taught his mom and whoever taught the person that taught his mom. And you see how this goes. I'm privileged to work with young people in the program called Foundations at the Memphis School of Preaching. It's an annual training camp for young men and women. 
And I'm so grateful to work with young people. I think the greatest reason I love it so much, it was a young person that helped my father find the truth of our Lord. And we've had now, though the program started over 10 years ago now, with 27 young men. A couple of years ago we had 227, 227 teenagers on our campus. We're averaging about 200 a year. Some of you may recognize this. My son, Michael, has threatened me to take this out of this presentation. And so I said, okay, would you rather I put the Justin Bieber photo in? Where he says, no, I don't want you to use that one either. The reason I put this one in, I, I want you to understand, this is a very difficult sermon for me to preach, and I don't preach it all that often because I'm always afraid it's going to be taken the wrong way. This is not a sermon about my family. This is a sermon about how one young man could lead to a family becoming a Christian family, whether it's mine, yours. Or, and you know what? I know tonight we have some others in this room tonight. You have your own family story, don't you? But how did it start? Someone uttered, my son is now a gospel preacher. His name, Michael Joseph. We named him Joseph after Joseph Crockett. And he's a gospel preacher in Somerville. I know he's preached here. You've privileged him to, I think, be on your summer series here. And I'm so grateful. These young men that I've been privileged to work with at Foundations. This one right here. It's Tate Williams. He won a sermon award at a camp he attended. And the reward was $3,000 scholarship to the school of your choice, to become trained to be a preacher. He told me, he said, I'm sending you $3,000. I won't be able to come to the Memphis School of Preaching for three years, but that money will be waiting for me there. And so, in October of, I can't remember the exact year now, the tall gentleman behind him with the blonde hair, I was in a gospel meeting in Cleveland, Tennessee at the Union Grove Congregation and Tate found out. He said, are you going to preach the sermon that week about Joe Crockett? I said, no, I didn't plan to. He said, would you please preach it if I'll come up for it? And I did. A month later, he was on his way to conduct his very first gospel meeting and someone lost control of their car and hit them head on. And unfortunately, he did die. And the hardest thing I've ever had to do was send that $3,000 back for the reasons that I had to send it back. I didn't care about the money one iota. I cared about the fact that here was a young man that was so on fire to want to preach. And he was so moved by this story. He always wanted to hear it because it empowered him, he said, to realize as a young person there's much that I can do. I close by saying this. When Joe died in 2006, Joe Crockett, I was in a gospel meeting nine miles from where he was buried the next year. I went to his grave. I stood there and I called my dad on the phone. I said, you'll never guess where I'm standing. I called my mom. I called my wife called my children and I told all of them where I was standing and tears were streaming down my cheeks as I thought here lies a man who in Okinawa thousands of miles from this spot uttered a simple sentence that started a chain reaction that would lead to a Christian family. And how many other families are waiting out there in McMinnville and surrounding areas for someone like you, someone like me, to just say the simple sentence that might start the chain reaction that will lead to a Christian family? How many people out there, how many moms in here can pass on to their children who will then pass it on to someone, who will pass it on to someone, and pretty soon you'll have a family photo of populated with Christians. 
if the person that had said what they said to you and your family to get your chain reaction started had never said what they said, where would you be tonight? And don't we owe it to folks, folks out there? Remember the four lepers in 2 Kings 7 found all this food and they said, well, we're not doing well. This is a day of great tidings. We can't just hoard this for ourselves. We need to tell everyone what we found. Friends, the person that told you or your mom and dad or whoever taught you, that person, if they hadn't spoken up, where would you be tonight and where are the people that you and I interact with on a regular basis going to be if we don't at least try? And so I ask you as we close, this is you. Who is this? Who could this be that you could talk to and invite to services or have a Bible study or just say, you know what, the Bible has made me such a happy person, I'd like to talk to you about it. Who will tell others about Jesus in your community? I'm here tonight to give you the gospel invitation of Jesus Christ, the same one that saved my father in Okinawa years ago, the same one that saved the folks on Pentecost we've been talking about all week, added them to the same church, the Lord's church, by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. I say this respectfully. I know what time it is. I've gone a little longer tonight than I normally have, but I'm doing it for eternal reasons that I hope you will understand. It's time for you to be a Christian if you're not already. It's time. And if you're a Christian but not living up to the name Christian and you know it, you're like my father, you've fallen away for a time, but you know the happiest you've ever been was when you were doing what was right, I'm asking you, I don't care what time it is we finally get out of this building and leave, I'm asking you, do you have time for folks to be saved tonight, yes or no? Do you have time for that? I do too. And so let's see it happen by the power of the blood of Christ and the grace of God and the church that Jesus Christ built. Let's see folks enter that church tonight. Let's see folks return to their first love tonight as together we stand and as we sing. Won't you please?